Let us pray. Father God, we stand before you as we have gathered to worship you, to experience something of you in your presence as we gather in your name. And as we consider your word, as we consider your spirit, as we consider your grace, I pray that it would be a transforming thing, that it would change us, that you would change us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might bear much fruit, showing ourselves to be your disciples. We give you this time now. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So today, as I mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday. It was the day in which the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus' disciples. He had promised that, uh, that the Spirit would come. They were in Jerusalem, they were in Jerusalem and celebrating the, uh, what is called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It's one of the Jewish feasts that was observed, and uh, it's described in Leviticus chapter 23. It's called Pentecost because it's celebrated on the 50th day after the first Sabbath during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So, you could, so it's a movable feast. You, you got to do them. You got to figure it out. But they knew when to celebrate, and they were there. Uh, and then the whole, they were praying, and they were gathered, and the Holy Spirit comes. And they are, they are filled with God's Holy Spirit, uh, with power. And it, it, many people call this the, uh, birth of, the birthday of the church. This is when the church was born. And so we have the visual reminders. We have uh, red stuff. On, the, on your bulletin shell, we've got a depiction. This is actually a... a Three paintings by Fra Angelico. He was a Dominican friar. He was an early Renaissance Italian painter. And uh, this work is called the Corsini Triptych. And it depicts the Ascension on the left, the Last Judgment in the center, and then Pentecost, which we're reflecting on today. And again, I, I, I include this as a, a visual reminder. And, and again, they were back in the day of Fra Angelico. These paintings were lessons. They were ways of teaching the truths of Scripture. Uh, people did not have their own Bible to carry around on their, obviously, on their smartphone or in their pocket. And uh, these works of art were, were great teaching works. This particular piece is actually on display right now in Boston at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And they have a whole Fra Angelico exhibit. It ends today. Sorry. So, but at 5 p.m. So if you want to head to Boston, if it's rainy this afternoon, it's a good day to go see uh, the Gardner Museum. You can see where all the stolen paintings were, the very famous um, heist, the biggest property theft in the history of the world, and a half a billion dollars end of paintings. But these are there. This one's there, at least for today. There is a permanent Fra Angelico on, on display at the museum. You can see that sometime. Uh, okay, but the one on the right here is, uh, depicts what happened in Acts chapter 2. And let me read to you. It says, Suddenly a sound like a blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And you can see on the painting, it's kind of small, but little red tongues of fire that are sitting. And that's how they would... Uh, teach that story. Uh, but the Holy Spirit came and brought power. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses, you will, and you will be my witnesses. 
Jesus said that the Spirit is a counselor, that the Spirit would counsel, that would, the Spirit would teach His people all things, John chapter 14. Remind you of the things that I've already taught you, again, John 14. That the Spirit will guide you into all truth. So the Spirit is a counselor and a guide. And so, uh, so we celebrate and remember God giving His Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to gather tonight uh, downstairs at 6 o'clock tonight. Um, to have a time of worship and prayer and uh, experiencing the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be a good time. I invite you to come to that. Um, but it's also, so it's, the, it's, it's known as the birthday of the church, but May is also the birthday of Free Christian Church. And we were born 172 years ago. You look pretty good still. Um, May 1846, and that's why we shared the video. And here's the connection. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the church. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit, as we've been thinking, as we've been reflecting through this sermon series we call fruit, as we consider the fruit of God's Spirit, part of that fruit is kindness. When John Smith was traveling around the country before he settled here in Andover, and his ship was blown in a storm and they had to go into Charleston Harbor, he, he gets off the ship, he sees a crowd of people, doesn't know what's going on, he went to just see what was happening. He sees it's a slave trade. And he remembers the names of the people who were sold. He remembers how much they were sold for. And he said, it went to my heart like a shot. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that transforms the heart of the believer to see injustice, to see evil, and to do what is good and right and kind. To do something about it. That's why kindness is so important. We want this noble legacy of the history of the Christian church, but the history of the free Christian church, to inspire our present ministry. So we need to understand kindness, and we, what, we need to understand what it is to to have this kind of kindness in our lives and in our ministry today. And I want to consider the kindness of God. So to do that, we turn to this passage from Titus chapter 3, as we consider God's kindness, and we, as we consider um, how to understand this. So we turn to Titus. Now, I, as far as I can look through my stuff, I, I don't think I've ever preached from Titus. We certainly haven't done a sermon series in Titus uh, in recent history, and it's, it's probably a part of the Bible that's a little bit neglected because it's a very short book. It should not be neglected in any way. This is a profound, a fantastic little letter, and it was written to Titus. Titus was a companion of the Apostle Paul as he was traveling on his missionary journeys and planting churches, and Paul leaves Titus behind on the island of Crete. So he's ministering to the Cretans, And uh, he's there to identify leaders and to appoint elders in the life of this church or a number of churches they've planted on this island. And Paul gives Titus instruction. You know, he says, you know, you got to find leaders. But he reminds them that this is an island of people who have not a great reputation. They are a rebellious people. And they are deceivers. And there are deceivers in the church who are teaching falsehood. At one point in this letter, Paul quotes a famous person from Crete who says, quote, 
Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's Titus 1.12. Always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The writer of that quote was a historian named Epimenides of of Gnostus. So he was 7th century B.C., and he was a native of Crete. So he's, he's bashing his own people. So I could make fun of people from New Hampshire and get away with it because I'm from New Hampshire. And again, this guy's from Crete, so he can call them liars, brutes, and gluttons. One of the reasons that Cretans got such a bad reputation, because in uh, Greek mythology, they, they, the, the people of Crete had a boast that they had the tomb of Zeus there in Crete. But as the head of the Olympic pantheon of Greek gods, Zeus could not die. So they're boasting of a tomb of a being who could not die. And so people just said, you just, all Cretans are liars, was sort of the, the same. Another historian, uh, Polybius, 2nd century BC, or 3rd century, uh, he said that the people of Crete were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome. So, again, was it just, uh, did they deserve this kind of a reputation? I don't know, but it seems like it was probably a pretty rough place and a pretty rustic place. Now, if you go to Crete today, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, but uh, probably pretty rustic and probably pretty rough. Maybe hard to find qualified leaders. So this is essentially the letter of Titus says this. Choose good leaders. Rebuke false teaching. Instead, teach the truth. And here is a reminder to tell the people to be kind. To do good, be people who exhibit kindness amongst a people who aren't really known for their kindness. And so I want to consider two things relative to kindness as Paul is telling Titus to teach these Cretans how to be kind to one another. And one of these is the least It's probably the least offensive statement you could say. And the other one is probably the most offensive statement you could make, or a very offensive statement. The first one. This is a a very non-offensive statement. It's this. Be kind. Look at verse 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. This is a very non-offensive kind of a teaching. This is at the heart of what it means to do good and to be kind. This is at the heart of our church and its founding, was there were people who were being uh, enslaved and abused and marginalized and did not even have the dignity of humanity, and a group of people said, we're going to stand up and do what is right and help these people escape and form a group, a community that is devoted to the dignity of every human life, regardless of your race or your background. This is at the heart of what you guys are doing when you go to Mexico. You're going to go to Mexico, and you're going to visit into this neighborhood, the Colonia, and you're going to bring a bag of rice and beans and flour, and sometimes with cooking oil, or just, just kind of a bag of groceries. And you'll, you'll go up to the gate and say, hey, we have a gift for you and you'll share a small amount of food. That food will not save those families. That food will not change their lives forever. But it's an act of kindness. It will alleviate for a few days at least, or for that, maybe for that week or month, they will have a little 
a buffer in their, um, in their food supply and in their, their money that you can go. And then you say, can we pray for you in any way? And you'll lay hands and you'll pray together and just be good neighbors. It's kindness. The, the VBS-style children's program where the kids from the Colonia come and you will lead that. This is kindness to these children to point them, uh, to give them a safe place, to give them a shaded place. Because we all gave money to build on a Christmas offering a number of years ago to build a huge shaded area. It's very hot down there and very dry. And it's just kindness. Specifically in this passage, it's, you know, be a good citizen. Be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. You know, without laws, there's chaos and anarchy. And this is, Christians need to be part of a community of of towns and of, of nations. And inherently, early Christianity, not Christian, there's no such thing as a Christian country or a Christian government at the time. We talk about that. How do we become more how to become more of a Christian government. Well, the, the, no such thing in the Bible. It's it be, being subject to, to where you live, even um, when that's difficult. It, to do whatever is good, to do good deeds, to slander no one, just don't hurt other people, be peaceful, but also considerate and gentle. You know, can't we all just get along? Justice and patience. There's a lot wrapped up in these words. It really has the notion of not becoming aggressive or angry, but living at peace with people. These words are good. These words are right for Christians. But let me ask you this. Who in the world would disagree with this? Even even the Apostle Paul, when he's describing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, all these things, self-control, he said "There's, there's no laws against this stuff. You can live your faith, and the Spirit can produce these things. There's, there, nobody's going to disagree with you. And since this is so non-offensive, the question then becomes, isn't this the thing every, every religion teaches? Isn't this all just kind of the same? You know, what's the difference between Christian kindness and uh, Buddhist kindness or Muslim kindness or just the kindness of a non-believer? Because um, nobody has a problem with kindness. I would say... The answer is yes, there's a difference, and it's a major difference. Because God cares about our hearts. And we can be kind. Nobody has a problem with kindness. But there's all kinds of reasons why you would be kind. You could be kind because you believe you're a really good person. Is that not just pride expressing itself as kind? You might be kind so that God will not punish you. You feel somehow responsible to God and you don't want God's wrath upon you, so you are kind to other people. Is that not just kindness? Or is that not just fear expressed as kindness? Or you are kind to people so that God will bless you, so that you will receive more of God's blessing. Is that not just self-righteousness expressed as kindness? Maybe you're kind and you do kind things so that other people, your neighbors, will accept you. They will like you. Is that not just insecurity or flattery expressing itself as kindness? You see, the point is to just 
Is the point to just do good, or is there something beneath the surface that's driving this? Is there a different quality of kindness and goodness that can be found in Jesus Christ? And yes, there is a difference. And yes, it is the motivation for kindness, the power to be kind. And we find that power in Jesus Christ, the power of his Holy Spirit. And here's why we live lives of kindness as Christians. It's because of God's grace. And God's grace is a great equalizer. Look at verse 3. So this teaching is, you know, be kind, be gentle towards everyone, be considerate. Verse 3, at one time you two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. The point here is, look, nobody is truly kind in themselves. Scripture teaches there is no one righteous, no, not one. Not just on the island of Crete, but everywhere and everyone. Sure, you may do some kind things, but there is a deep sin inside us where we are not kind. And kindness will genuinely flow from God's grace and from our salvation. And here is the most offensive notion. So if I say, point number one, be kind, that's not offensive. Point number two, be saved. That is, true kindness will flow from salvation, from being saved, that God saved us from our sins. Now this is, wait a minute. You just got up there and said, be kind, and the church should be kind, and now you're saying we're all sinners? That's not kind. Yeah, that's judgmental. And you were supposed to be doing the kindness thing, and now you're doing the sin thing. But here's the point. said, you're going to be kind because you used to be a sinner. And what does sin do to us? Sin makes us dead. Sin makes us spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, you are dead in your transgressions. It separates us from God and it divides us from one another. We need to be saved and we need to understand God's salvation. Well, why does God save us? Because we're kind people? No, God saves us because of his kindness and his love. Look at verse 4. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And this separates Christian love and kindness from all other religions, is that my goodness is not based on what I do, but it's based in what he has done for me. He saves me because he's merciful. He saves me because he is kind. And these are the, what we call the communicable attributes of God. That means like a disease. We catch them from God, and now we are contagious in ourselves. His kindness. Romans 2.4, God's kindness leads you to repentance. Ephesians 2. God shows the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is, for it is by grace you're saved through faith. God saves us because he loves us and he loves his people. And in verse 4, it's his kindness and his love. Again, this, again God's love is not offensive. Love of God, that God is love, this is very biblical. It's because of his love he shows this kindness to us. Um, But again, it is offensive because we need to trust him in his love or we are cut off from him in his love. I don't know if you saw the sermon yesterday in the royal wedding. I I swore I wasn't going to watch this wedding. And even at the men's breakfast, we may have poked a little fun at friends and family members, at my table at least. Um, We might have. I don't want to incriminate the people I sat with. But we might have poked fun at those who were somehow getting dressed up and having parties to watch a wedding 
another country. Um, so I was, and we were busy eating breakfast and being spiritual men, Amer spiritual American men. And so we didn't have time for such things. However, as the day went on and the news is coming in, uh, I, had to, I had to watch this homily, this 13-minute uh, sermon. You can watch it. Now, uh, here's my thought. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you hear what that man said, it means something to you. And you believe what he said and the power of what he said. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you also believe what he said in a very different way. And you're not offended by it, not even a little bit. Because, yeah, love is good and love is powerful and love can change the world. Awesome. Romans 11 says this, though. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. The point is this. God, uh, for those in unbelief, God has cut them off. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, God has grafted them into his family. And anyone can be grafted into that family. And in the context here, it's Jew, Gentile, Brit, or American. Or I added that part. The, but all can be grafted in through faith. But it's not just God's love, it's his sternness against us in our sin that separates us from him. How did God accomplish the salvation? He saved us, verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's the Holy Spirit that is poured on us that regenerates us, that takes us from this deadness in this self-centeredness, and it pushes us to a life of true love and kindness. It's all about the Holy Spirit. Look, in the ancient world, really, two ways to purify. You can wash something with water, a garment or a body, and you can clean it with water, or you can refine something with fire, a metal to purify it. And, and John the Baptist, he's on the scene. He said, I'm baptizing with water. There's one coming after me. It's Jesus. He's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. So we are, we are washed as with water, and we are refined as with fire by the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we are nothing. William Barclay said this. He said, all the work of the church, all the words of the church, all the sacraments of the church are inoperative unless the power of the Holy Spirit is there. However highly a church be organized, however splendid its ceremonies may be, however beautiful its buildings, handsome home, all is ineffective without that power. The lesson is clear. Revival in the church comes not from increased efficiency in organization, but from waiting upon God. Not that efficiency is not necessary, but no amount of efficiency can breathe life into a body from which the Spirit has departed. We need God's Spirit. Amen. And why? Why does... Okay, see, it's, it's about His grace and mercy. His Spirit accomplishes the purifying, the washing, and the fire. Why? Verse 7. Take a look. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This, he did it to make us heirs, to make us his children. 
to give us the hope of eternal life. And this hope motivates us. The Holy Spirit comes in as this deposit that I have a future hope that is certain. And now I am operating from a place of hope. Therefore, this grace is transforming me. In, in chapter 2 of Titus, the teaching here is, it says, uh, uh, Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. It's the Holy Spirit. I can't, in my own willpower, say no to the bad things, and I'm going to just do the good things and the kind things. No, it's the Holy Spirit that teaches me to say no to that and yes to that. And I can pursue it with all my heart. And, it's good. and the teaching here, that is good for us, and it's good for the whole world. That's why, nobody, that's why nobody disagrees with it. That's why nobody's offended. But, it, but you have to understand your offense to God through sin and the, the washing of the, the Spirit, that you can be empowered to live this kind of life. So what do we do with this? I think a good example of what to do with this, we see right here in, chat, in verse 9. It says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. There's all kinds of things we could focus on as people and as a church, in this legalism or things that divide us and you know, in some ways, it's almost easier to sit in a small group and discuss theological ideas than it is to be consistently kind and considerate at home or diligent and honest at work. You know, what's the point of sitting in deep theological discussion if it's not pushing me to the simple tasks of the Christian life that are just kind of waiting to be done? Deep theological reflection is excellent. And we must sit and study and, and debate and wrestle with these things. But these things must push us to a life of love and goodness and kindness. But so discussion is good, but discussion that does not lead to action can be largely wasted time. So let's, one application is as we study, as you meet with your group, uh, our learning, our prayer, our experience of the Holy Spirit is one that motivates us to love and good deeds. And then go out and do something kind. Be kind. But again, then it's not just a random act of kindness. Go do random act of kindness. There's nothing random about this. It's reflecting on the love of God, letting his spirit motivate you and, his and um, motivate you towards kindness. And then may our love and kindness change our world. And point the world to God's love and his kindness. Let me leave you with the words of Jesus. Let your light shine before all people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven.